Welcome to Creative Lives, a podcast which opens provocative conversations, experimenting with big ideas and local practices. My name is Lorna Collins, and I will bring together researchers, experts by experience, artists and performers, approaching issues around community, learning, communication, healthcare, welfare, age and the life course. As we will see, the possibilities of creativity are endless. Now, our topic today is young people's mental health and well-being, and my guests are artist Lydia Lydia and researcher Thomas Cador. Lydia Lydia is a multidisciplinary artist who works with installation, video, photography, performance and activism. She believes passionately in the statement that the personal is political and that art can shape society. She uses strong and sometimes disturbing images with extensive research to communicate uncomfortable narratives. Thomas Cador is an Associate Professor in Arts and Sciences at University College London. He is Principal Investigator of the SWELLS Project, investigating student well-being, and he works with the Student Mental Health Research Network. And also he and his colleagues at UCL are about to launch a massive new Creative Health MASC degree program. So Thomas and Lydia, tell me, what does creativity mean to you? Tell me how you express yourself creatively in your own life and your work. So I believe that for me, creativity is a sort of cocktail between communication and self-expression and is a kind of way for sharing with the world what makes me, me. And... uh, the way that I express myself, Lorna, you already said, I'm, I'm a multidisciplinary artist and I work with installation, performance, photography, videos and uh, activism. And uh, activism, I believe, is more the ethical way that I approach my work and the way that I show it to people. I call it medium nowadays because more and more there are more requests about uh, art that use activism that is called artivism but if I must analyze exactly what is activism for me as a medium is the way that uh, I approach my work and the way that I push it out I present it to the audience and apart from that I must say that my art more I'm getting old more is getting all a big creative project because uh, all my life is dictated by my projects and my practice, so the way that I sleep, I eat, or that I don't eat, or that I don't have time for shopping, the people that I see, the way that I feel very often. So it's getting more and more everything very interconnected between my creative practice and actually my life. Thank you, Lydia. There's a symbiotic link between art, creativity and activism in your work. Thomas, what about you? Where is creativity in your life, in your work? Thanks, Lorna. Yeah, um, I've been thinking about it a little bit over the over the recent past, in particular in relation to the program that you've mentioned, that we are launching a, a master's in creative health. And in that context, I sort of had to think quite hard what we actually mean by creativity, because it's one of those terms that can mean so many things to so many different people or everybody almost has their own take on it. And I would 
sort of like to go back to the original meaning, if you want, um, because creativity tends to be associated, obviously, with art of all types of things. But I would like to go back to that original meaning of creativity, of linking to creating, to the process of making something. And this is really my take on it, that it's about making something, perhaps something that hasn't been done or made before. So any type of problem solving, obviously, even identifying problems and then trying to do something about it could be seen as a very much of a creative act. And I think why I find that helpful, this uh, linking creative with making, with creating, is that it takes away this elitist idea that sometimes is associated with when you say art. And people, you know, have these separations into high art and low art and so on. And I think if you think about creating as opposed to something more like artistic or so on, then it takes away that little bit of separation between those areas of high and low art. Personally, you know, I've never seen myself as a very artsy type of person. I've never been very good at, you know, arts in school and, and drawing and those kind of things. So my confidence, I guess, in relation to many of those areas would have been quite bruised. I and mean, if you come back later to the young people's mental health, art education, for example, has to answer for in relation to creativity and, and young people. But what I've discovered in my adult life is that there are lots of things that I do that are very creative in lots of ways. I, I'm very interested in in the outdoors, for example, in foraging and wild foods and so on and identifying things out in the wild and having the confidence and collect those and to cook them and eat them whether it's wild mushrooms or or herbs or anything like that is actually quite a creative process for example just just as one example so so engaging with nature in in this week could also be seen as quite a creative thing i'd like to bring it back a little bit under the creative health aspect seen as this podcast series is essentially about health to some degree and with today's focus, especially on, on young people's mental health. If I bring creative back to the process of creating, to making something, then if we link that with the creative health element, then we can think about what do we mean by creating health? Essentially, the idea is that everyone has the opportunity in some way to be a health creator. And this helps, I think, with the very transactional process that we associate with healthcare in this country. That, you know, usually you seek healthcare when you're unwell and then you have a professional who fixes you, right? That's sort of the, in very simplistic terms, the idea. But when we look at creative health, it's about that everybody can in some way be involved in, in the process of creating their own health and other people's health. And I think that's, that's a really important shift that, as I said, I've been thinking about over the last number of years when we started developing a, an educational program in this field in creative health. That's fascinating. Thank you, Thomas. So let's now contextualise the topic we're looking at today, young people's health and well-being in the current moment. So what is the situation and what are the issues we should be looking at right now? Obviously, we have the pandemic, COVID-19, but where do young people sit in today's society and how can they create their health as you were just saying Thomas and what obstacles do they meet this is obviously a, a huge question I'm not a clinician I'm not a psychologist so I'm not an expert in in this traditional uh, field of mental health in a clinical sense my perspective is as you mentioned at the start, that I'm involved in a number of research projects and initiatives 
on, in particular, university students' mental health and university students' well-being. And from my professional side of things, I've been working in higher education for quite a number of years. And for the last four or five years, I've been departmental tutor in my own department, which means that all the kind of serious well-being related and pastoral cases past my desk. Any student that is in serious difficulty, I, I know about it. I have to deal with these cases. So I've seen quite a lot anecdotally in that regard, in particular to university students. But I think probably university students aren't that different from the general young adult, adolescent population. I think there's a lot of attention placed, for example, on this idea of a mental health crisis in the universities with students. And I don't disagree with the the idea of it, but I, I think I'm wondering to what degree this is just much more visible in the universities because it's just such a large number of our young people come together in universities in higher education, whereas, which is, I, I guess we are close enough to 50% of people between 18 and 21 doing some form of higher deferred education course, and therefore they are all collected there. And the other half of young people that don't go to these institutions they are much more dispersed. So therefore, we don't have the same image. With universities, we have large numbers of students and therefore a high high proportion of them demonstrate some mental health difficulties. And that makes it very visible, very easy to um, get a picture. And the picture is quite worrying, I think. In the 10 years, I think, to 2017, 18, we've seen something like a five-fold increase in the report of university students, for example, disclosing mental health conditions. And in my own work as departmental tutor, as I've mentioned, luckily none of the students I've been uh, working with have taken their own life, but we've had quite a few examples of suicidal behavior. So so there is a, a problem there. Why is this happening? I, I think this is a, one of those kind of million dollar questions, right? Um, putting a simple answer on this is not easy and many people are working on it. There is obviously a lot of Research, for example, on social media and the impact of social media, children from very young ages are exposed to this 24-hour, almost constant accessibility of the online world of social networking and so on. Having said that, there's also research in North America, for example, that demonstrate that people can use social media to find themselves more connected to others, to actually help their, their well-being. So it's not a clear-cut situation, I think. One possible explanation is the amount of pressure that young people experience in today's society. I think there is a lot of of emphasis on doing well for yourself and this idea that we have of a meritocracy, right? That you can achieve anything if you just work hard enough. That puts a lot of pressure on young people from a very young age, starting with, you know, at least with secondary education, but even before potentially where we really put a lot of emphasis on high achievers and high achieving. And I think it sets up young people almost destined to fail to some degree, to reach those um, superlatives, those really high, high goals that we are presenting them with. And I think that probably has a lot to answer for. I'm not saying that's the, the single cause of the difficulties young people are facing, but I think the way we are emphasizing so much these various elements of high achieving is potentially very problematic. Thank you, Thomas. And Lydia, what are your thoughts about young people's health and well-being in the current moment? Absolutely, I share 
everything, every point with a Thomas, but going also more backwards, not just university students, but analyzing also younger children. My partner has three children that they are not mine, but I've seen them since when they were 10 and now they are in their 20s and I've seen their change and their approach and their mood during all the development, let's call it, of social media and this sort of pressure that gave to them. And these uh, feeling that they had, not only them, but also with other friends that I talk of them, and clearly then I was curious and I read more and more, there is this constant pressure to them, not only as Thomas said about doing well, so there is this performance stress constantly, but also about becoming kind of rich, famous and sexy in a very ridiculous age that is just literally harming a child, I mean, children of 12, 13 years old, but both boys and girls, not only girls, being so hypersexualized uh, in a very stereotypical way. So you have these girls that so quick they start to pester the parents. I talk with some of them that they want already their lips made, surgical, or they are already planning for breast implantation or liposuction, or when they are their hormones are still developing. They are still doing a, a path that we should leave the body free to do it before thinking, okay, I'm going to do some sort of intervention. And they don't want actually to do that because uh, out of the blue one morning, they wake up and they say, well, I need that. Otherwise, I don't feel well. They want to do that because they want to comply with the rest of the society, with the friends. Yes. So what's important to consider is what can we do creatively to address this situation moving forwards? For me, one of the points, again, that I agree with Thomas is this thing about validation and recognition that you have through the institutional school. And I thought quite a lot about this because um, I have a friend in Italy. She has two children. One is seven years old and the other one is uh, three, I believe. And the one at seven years old goes in a sort of peculiar school that is the first time that I heard about a project like that, where children, instead that uh, being evaluated from the school about their homework or what they do, they self-evaluate themselves and they have to explain the reason why they give the marks that they give to their projects. And I think that this is very interesting. I can understand that you can't do it with everything, you know, like math, science. There are things that you are really obliged somehow to fit on the box because it's that, because we are talking about formulas, because we are talking about a scientific work, something that you can't deconstruct, but about creativity. And here I reconnect with Thomas when he said, you know, I didn't feel myself so creative because when I was at school, I was in this way, in that way. But now that I got older, I just recognize that my approach to other stuff is literally very creative. So doing this self-evaluation, giving chance to children from the primary school to self-evaluate themselves, justifying the marks that they give to their project, I think that this would be an incredible experiment and an incredible way of helping children to avoid to be under the stress of performance and doing things just because they want to do it because it makes them feel well and not because they want to have the final marks. 
and in this way they also will feel less in competition with other people because everything will be just on their shoulder about how much can I put more on this, what I can do better, because the creative process is not just copying, let's say drawing. Everyone wants to draw as Michelangelo, Leonardo, but drawing is not that. Drawing is the identity of your marks, is like your voice. And creativity is the same. We have all different sort of approach to this. And a very important thing is also to have, again, a holistic approach and a more oriental approach to creativity as a society, as a collectivity, because we have this perception of creativity as a sort of tool for becoming, again, more recognized or famous. And instead, we should understand that creativity is something that makes us feel well, at least makes me feel well in my mind and in my body. And what makes me feel bad generally is because instead that having time and enjoying what I do, I'm freaking out because I have to achieve something for posting it on Instagram, that no one cares literally about me on Instagram. So it's very important that as a society, as a collectivity, we change our approach to some sort of uh, thoughts, to creativity. And then after that we do that, we can teach to children that actually that is not a tool for becoming cool and having more validation from the external, but is a very important element in your life for feeling well with yourself and connected with your deepest you. Thank you, Lydia. That's fascinating. Thomas, would you like to respond to any of that? Yeah, and there's a lot of similarity in what I've been thinking about. I see sort of three levels of what we may be able to do or areas that we could address. There's the things that are actually quite simple if the will was there. And then there is the things that are, the structures are in place, but we need to rethink them. They're more difficult. And then I think the really hard ones where we just don't have the answers and maybe haven't even asked the right questions yet. So in terms of simple wins, in line with what Lydia has been talking about, the way all young people pretty much in this country by the age of 21 have had some contact with institutional education. So education needs to play a role somewhere there, an important one. We've published a little paper last year just asking some of our students in University College London about things like what are the main stresses in their lives, what are the, the things that make them feel well and so on. And clearly assessment is always in the top of what makes people unwell and what stresses them, right? That doesn't just happen in university. It's obviously at, at secondary school in particular with GCSEs and A-levels. And this links to something interesting. We haven't really talked about COVID and the pandemic, right? What's really interesting in terms of positive legacies is that now in a few months' time, we will have survived in university, in secondary schools, for two years without examinations. We'll have survived without GCSEs. We'll have survived without A-levels and without the traditional sit-down exams in universities where you have 300 students cramped into a big hall, sitting down with a piece of paper for two hours, needing to write something down out of their brains. Of course, things have been difficult around COVID in every respect, including some of these areas, but we can make this better, right? Rather than trying now to go back to the system that we knew wasn't perfect in the first place, I would argue was actually very poor. We should use that as an opportunity and realize, let's rethink the way we assess uh, in education. I think that's quite an easy win because we have already started for two years now doing it because we had to. 
And if you want to go the whole hog, then we're getting into the territory of more difficult things. Should we consider abandoning grading altogether? Is awarding grades actually helpful? Is it actually beneficial? But that's a, another conversation for another day. Then in terms of the more difficult fields, then these are about prioritizing funding, for example. Recently, the government here has announced an extra 79 million investment into young people's mental health, which is obviously very welcome. The question is, how is that money going to be spent? And the other question is, is it going to be spent? Because the previous investment announced the five-year kind of approach announced in 2015, a large majority of that money has never been invested. It was pledged, but it didn't end up getting used. So that's an, an issue in itself. But also, if it was spent, a lot of this will be spent in areas of firefighting, in areas of helping young people when they're already in crisis, whether it's eating disorder, clinics, whether it's mental health, whether it's CBT or other uh, um, cognitive behavioral therapy or other therapeutic approaches to to young people already in crisis. There's very little, of, if any, investment actually in thinking about preventing young people becoming so unwell that they need these supports that are so costly and so difficult. And this is then when we reach the, the third level that I mentioned, the really difficult ones, and that is actually getting to those answers. What are those causes? Why are young people finding life so difficult in a relatively peaceful, safe environment as the UK in the 21st century? Okay, the last year has been difficult, but still, we should imagine that life is pretty good in this day and age in Western Europe, yet young people are really struggling in large amounts. Finding answers to that question, I think, is the real challenge. And then think about creative approaches throughout the life journey for people to make a real difference, to bring real benefits for people's well-being. Can I add something on this conclusion of Thomas that I think that is, from my point of view, very important? One of the problems about how to invest in, uh, is that uh, a lot of society is just based about money, money that we can spend if we don't see a return. And actually, we have approved that doing something like this apart the mental well-being and the physical well-being of our children, but the return that we can have for society, we had the proof with the Bauhaus that this method work to have a more holistic approach to creativity with more freedom and more experimentation can be an investment for our society massive. What we'll give back is major. If you think that the Bauhaus existed just for about 14 years, but changed the, the approach of life, the story of the world. We live in the cities where we live and they are structuring that in this way and we build the buildings that we build because of the Bauhaus. The advertising that are the core, the, the soul of the business, they exist as they exist because the Bauhaus, the smartphone, the minimalist design of the smartphone exists because these people, they invested on this research about design and minimalism. Also, the structure of the society of the capitalism and neoliberalism as we know it exists because of them, because they've been the first one studying about design for mass production. IKEA without them didn't exist. So the problem is that society should really try to change their mind and focus in what is important. And what is important is not money and power. They arrive 
consequently, but without creativity, without the mind of people working and being healthy for making work their mind, we can't have either money and we are not able to advance anymore. We are in a point that we need to advance. We need to change things if we want to save our civilization. And it's so important to have new point of view, new minds working well. Thank you, Lydia. That's very illuminating. We've actually run out of time. Do you want to just say your last point, Thomas? Well, I just wanted to say that we don't need to entirely reinvent the wheel either because a lot of the seeds for some of the things we could do are already there, right? There are lots of examples of really good practice out there, in particular in the third sector, in the voluntary sector, in the community. So I think all we need to do is harness some of this. It just takes people recognizing the benefit of this kind of work and harness that. Thank you to Lydia Lydia and Thomas Kedor for what you have shared and for our collaborative thinking. I look forward to applying these ideas in our creative practice in our creative lives. Thank you to Grand Challenges for producing the podcast, UCL Minds for publishing and the input of our numerous collaborators behind the scenes. The editing is by Nina Quach and the music is by Tim Moore. We will be back with another podcast in two weeks' time. Music